You are listening to the preaching ministry of Christ Church San Antonio. The following sermon is from our series in the book of Revelation. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.christchurchsa.com. Thank you for listening. Go ahead and be seated. We'd appreciate it. Again, we're glad you're here. If you have a Bible with you, please open it up. Uh, we are in the towards the end of the very last book of the Bible, so open up the very end. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10 is our text today. If you don't have a Bible, there's some Bibles out on the information table that we'd love for you to take on your way out today. The text is also projected on the screen right here behind me. So Jay's going to read for us Revelation chapter 20. Let's give our attention to God's Word. Revelation 20, 1 through 10. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of each of our hearts be pleasing in your sight this morning. We ask for your help as we come to the story of the Bible, and particularly as we draw near its end. We pray that you would give us understanding in our heads and in our hearts of what you are saying to us this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation is a lot like um, a piece of classical music. Uh, you can pick out themes in the most famous classical pieces that get repeated throughout the piece. And initially in a piece, the themes are suggestive, perhaps, and, and vague, but they recur and they get more explicit as the piece continues. And eventually the music is taken up with a finale, uh, a beautiful crescendo. And that's really kind of how Revelation is structured. And as we get into Revelation chapter 20, we see the crescendo beginning. These last three chapters are the last movement, the great finale of the book. And they also portray for us in their typical apocalyptic image-driven way, the grand finale or the last movement of the history of the world. Now, we've got three weeks left in Revelation this week. Next week, we'll look at the second part of chapter 20, and then on April 9, we'll look at chapter 21 and 22. And you should know that these verses that Jay just read for us, um, they're the most controversial 
part of probably the most controversial book in the Bible. So yay for us. We get to do that this morning. Uh, these are just really, really difficult verses. Uh, they're one of the most, it's one of the most disputed sections of scripture. And um, the reason for that revolves around this phrase, a thousand years, which in Greek, the language the New Testament is written in is one word. So this word translated a thousand years or the millennium. It's repeated six times in these 10 verses. And the controversy surrounds this word. What is the millennium? Is it literal or is it figurative? Is it future, past, or present? Who's a part of it? Is it before or after the return of Jesus? All of those are debated topics. And I'd encourage you uh, to read the paper that I wrote for you at the beginning of our series, or reread it perhaps, or yeah, get it out of your trash or your email junk mail or whatever, and uh, just read through that to get a brief overview of what really are the three major interpretive positions on this text. They're known as pre, post, or a millennialism. Now, given the significant lack of clarity in this text and the difficulty of this text, it rattled me this week again as I was preparing for it. Um, I want to say three things as we get going. Actually, I want to say four things. That's bad when the pastor's like adding points in the middle of the sermon. Four things. First, this isn't on the slides, but first, um, what was I going to say? Okay, three things. I forgot the fourth one. Bad start here. Okay, point one, just as we get going. There are a lot of well-respected Orthodox Christian pastors and theologians who would disagree with the interpretation that I'm about to give you of this passage. So you need to know that. Um, this is very much an open-handed issue, which is the way we use, the language we use at Christchurch to talk about issues that Christians can debate and still have fellowship with one another. They're important, but they're not essential. So I'm going to come from a particular perspective this morning. It's traditionally called the amillennial position. You might be familiar with that. You might not. It doesn't matter if you're familiar with it or not. We're going to look at the text itself in a minute. But there are a lot of great arguments for other positions as well, and I want to express that to you. And if you have interest in this, you can look into resources that I can give to you. So that's the first point. Secondly, let me say this. I just want to confess this to you. I'm not fully persuaded even of my own position. I know that might sound weird. Not a great way to begin arguing for a position. Not persuaded of this. And I think it's the, the least problematic of all these positions. But this is a really, really hard text. And certainty, like absolute certainty, is kind of hard to come by in some ways. And so we should just have some interpretive humility as we look at it. And um, certainty, I don't think, is really attainable. Each of the major kind of interpretive positions has strengths. But more importantly, each position has what I think are crippling weaknesses. And so this view that I'm about to give that I think the Bible's really teaching has some weaknesses. But I think the weaknesses with this view are less bad than the weaknesses of the other views. Okay, third, this is a more of a teaching sermon. As we go through God's word together, some texts I just have to do a little more teaching than others, and this is one of those. But here's what I want you to hear as we get going. This is not just meant to be a theologically sophisticated argument, but this part of the Bible fits into the larger story of Revelation. The story that, as we've seen again and again, is Jesus wins. Jesus wins. Jesus will triumph. That's what the millennium is about, no matter the view you take of it. So this sermon is going to have some teaching work to it. 
But I also want to do my best to, to connect it to each of our lives in ways that are meaningful and, and practical. Because when we separate theology from practice, <clears throat> no matter how good your theology is, you think, if it's separated from practice, it's not good theology. So theology and practice always go together. Okay, so with those three things sort of out of the way, by way of introduction, let me try and summarize like this. Here's the main idea. Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. That's what Revelation 20 is about. Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. Three points. The binding of Satan, <clears throat> the reign of the saints, and the loosing of Satan. That's our outline. Okay, so first, the binding of Satan. Look at this text with me. Beginning in verse 1, John sees an angel in another vision, and the angel comes down from heaven, and he has with, with him a key and a chain, we read. And the angel seizes the dragon, the devil, and binds him and throws him into the abyss or the pit, and he seals it. And so, pause. Immediately, we face an issue in the larger context. And here's the issue that you need to wrestle with. Do the events that John sees in this vision chronologically follow the events we saw last week at the end of chapter 19? That's the question. And remember last week we saw that Jesus destroyed the beast and the false prophet. It was the return of Jesus, 1920. You can see that. That was a culminating chapter of the book. <clears throat> and I think that the best way, probably, to interpret chapter 20 verses 1 through 3 with respect to chapter 19 is that this is another instance of John remixing for us. The word that we've used is the word recapitulation. If you've been with us throughout Revelation, you'll see that this book is structured as a series of cycles. It's not primarily to be read as a chronological linear book, but as a group of remixes describing the same time period. For example, we read about the seven trumpets in chapters 8 through 11. And then in chapter 12, we had a description of the same time period described by the seven trumpets, but it was using different images and different metaphors. And I think that that is what is happening in chapter 20 as well. Chapter 20 is pulling us back and looking at the same period of time described in chapters 16 through 19 from a different angle with different images. So... If you can follow that line of thinking so we understand what we're doing here, then you can see that the phrase a thousand years should be interpreted symbolically and not literally. A thousand years is another way that John refers to the age between Jesus' first and second coming. He's probably not referring here to a literal 1,000-year period after the return of Jesus, which we saw in chapter 19. Rather, the millennium is just another way to describe the same period of time that the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls described. So the millennium is a symbolic depiction of the period between Jesus' first and second coming. The millennium is non-literal. That doesn't mean it's not true. It just means it's not to be interpreted in Revelation literally. It's another way that Revelation describes our own day. So I think it's fair to say that we are in the millennium. Now this makes sense given what we've seen as we've gone through the book. Remember, virtually every number in the book is symbolic. It's a part of the genre of literature that John is using in this letter. 
And virtually every image is symbolic. We've talked about that almost every week. So it wouldn't make a lot of sense, would it, for John to suddenly, at the very end of the letter, use a number like a thousand, which is 10 times 10 times 10. It's a, it's a number symbolizing fullness. It wouldn't make sense for John to use that number literally when basically every other number to this point has been symbolic. And if we follow the interpretive principles that have brought us this far, we should read the number, the thousand years, figuratively as well. It is a recapitulation of other cycles we have seen. And it refers to the church age, to our age. Okay? So given that, what happens during these thousand years, during the millennium? Look at the text. The first thing John sees, as we saw, is Satan, verse 2, being bound. And notice there it says he is bound so that the purpose of his binding is so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until after the millennium is ended. So what does that mean? What this means, likely, is that as a result of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, the, the deceptive power of Satan is restricted and limited. It is bound during the time between Jesus' first and second comings, during our age. I think that the vision is saying that the devil is a dangerous and a ferocious dragon, but he is behind bars in this age. Now, most of us have been to the zoo. And if you have children, it's fun to go to the zoo when your children are little, and you go up to the lion's den, right? And the lion is always behind bars. If, if the lion is not behind bars, you're not in a zoo. You're in the wild, and you should run or climb a tree or whatever. But at zoos, the lions are behind bars. And the lion's still ferocious. The lion's still dangerous. The lion, if he's hungry, is someone you don't want to mess with. You don't want to meet him in a dark alley. If you're on his side of the bars, he's going to devour you, right? But he is restricted. He is bound to his particular place of movement. And the binding of the lion enables you to be free from his devouring power to a large degree. And that's what Revelation is saying about the devil in this age. He is still dangerous. If you're on the wrong side of the bars, he can devour you. But because Jesus has been raised from the dead and because Jesus has ascended into heaven, the devil in his power is limited. And he's limited, especially we read with reference to his deceptive power over the nations. One summer when I was in seminary, um, I needed a job that summer, and um, Marianne and I were newly married, and I got a job as a mailman for the summer, carrying mail in a local neighborhood in the Philadelphia suburbs, and I loved the job. But one of the things I learned is that dogs really do hate mailmen. And that's not just apocryphal. That is a true fact. And uh, there's this one house that had this huge Rottweiler. And I've always been a, I was always a dog guy, and then I became a mailman. And now I'm kind of, eh, you know. And uh, I remember I would always hear this Rottweiler barking. And some days when I would deliver on that block, the owner would be out taking the dog on a walk. And uh, one day, late in the summer, I was walking down the street and I saw the owner and I saw the Rottweiler and I saw the leash. And then I saw the owner lift up his hand and wave at me without his hand attached to the leash. And the dog takes off. And, you know, they give you this little wimpy piece of mace, you know, thing like this big. And I'm, 
trying to get the mace. This dog's coming full speed. I'm on the same side of the street as this dog, and it gets to the edge of the yard and stops. There's one of those, you know, invisible electric fences that are attached to the dog's collar, and it creates this either like this shock or a high-pitched squeal or whatever in the dog's ear that causes it to stop. And it was like this far, <laughs> slight exaggeration, but it felt this far from me. I could smell its dog breath, all that stuff. Whoa, I'm glad this dog is bound. Otherwise, it would have been ba a bad day to end my mail-carrying career. That's exactly how Revelation 20 is describing the devil after the resurrection of Jesus. The devil in our age, he is limited. So what's the point of all this? The point is this. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, you are to be encouraged. You're to be encouraged because Satan is limited in his power and deceptive influence. And think about that. Think about how encouraging that would have been to the original people that John wrote this letter to in the first century who had been persecuted in their churches and had fear of their life almost regularly before them. John is saying to these people, and he's saying to us now that Satan can persecute, but he can only do so much. His influence is curtailed. His, his power is limited. That means that what Jesus tells us in the Great Commission Go into the world, make disciples of all nations. That can be fulfilled. That can be realized. Jesus has authority on heaven and on earth. The gospel's going to go forth. And if you think about history, this makes sense. I mean, in the Old Testament, a very small fraction of percentage of people on the planet were followers of God. The people of Israel were, it was largely restricted to the people of Israel. But since Jesus has come and has been raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God, the gospel has gone into all the world. And now, even today, we have a billion Christians in the world from all over the world, people of every tongue and color and language and, and nation. That is a good sign. That's part of what Revelation is getting at, that since Christ's triumph in his resurrection, the gospel now goes out in power and myriad upon myriad will believe. Jesus himself says this when he was alive on the earth during his earthly ministry. He says in John 12, now, now the prince of this world, the devil, will be cast out. He says in John 16 that the ruler of this world is being judged, present tense. He is being judged now. Christ came, we read in Matthew 12, to bind and defeat the strong man, a word for the devil, in Luke 10, when the apostles go out into their ministry and return and tell Jesus a report, Jesus says, I saw the devil fall like lightning from heaven when the apostles preached the good news. So it's not as if Satan has no power or influence, but it is restricted. He cannot deceive as he once did. The resurrection assures this. And so practically, we are to go. We are to go and love our neighbor. We are to go and plant churches that proclaim the good news. We are to go and tell others that the dividing wall of hostility between man and God has been broken down in Jesus. The point is that Christ's victory is so complete that the devil cannot stop Jesus from saving sinners from all over the place. That is the binding, the binding of Satan. And so secondly then, we see in verses four through six another vision this vision is about the reign of the saints, and it refers to the same time period of the vision in the first three verses, to our day, the church age. It coexists with the binding of Satan. And what do we see? Look there with me. 
Well, we see with John the souls of people who have been martyred. Martyrdom is when you are put to death for your belief in Jesus. People who are murdered for being Christians, probably by the beast of chapter 13. We see them reigning with Jesus during this thousand years, during the millennium. And in verse 5, this reign and this life is described as the first resurrection. You see that there? And John says that these people are blessed and that the second death has no power over them. They are priests of God and of Christ. Now, that's an awesome vision. It's awesome. But what does that mean? Now, I think the key to understand that is to understand this phrase, the first resurrection. If this vision coexists with the binding of Satan that we just looked at, which I think it does, and if it refers to the current age, which I think it does, I think that's the best possibility, then the first resurrection is a way of describing what happens to Christians after death in our age, in the age before the return of Jesus. And it seems further that martyrs have a special place Although all Christians who die are included in these verses. Now, theologians have called this the intermediate state. The intermediate state. And what it teaches is that, is that the reign of the saints, or the first resurrection, refers to the spiritual reign of the souls of believers that are with Jesus now after their deaths. And if that's what's meant by the first resurrection, then the second death is eternal death, which we'll look at more next week. It's eternal separation from God after the resurrection of the just and the unjust, the second resurrection. I know this all gets confusing. But the bottom line is the first resurrection and the reign of the saints refers to where those brothers and sisters in Christ go after death. They immediately go into the presence of Jesus in their disembodied state. Their bodies haven't been raised yet, but their souls, their spirits immediately enter into the presence of Christ. So to summarize, okay, in the millennium, the time between Jesus' first and second coming, Satan is bound so that the gospel can go forth, and Christians who die, especially those who are martyred for their faith, immediately go into the presence of Jesus in heaven, in their spirits, and reign with him from above in glory and holiness as they wait the resurrection of their bodies and the second coming. And again, listen, we've got we've to make sense of the text, but the point again is that this is meant to encourage our loved ones who die in Christ are in a place of great joy and peace and glory. And if you die and you are a follower of Jesus and you die before he comes back to ransom his people finally and fully, you will immediately enter into the blessed and perfect and pure presence of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And not only are they with Christ, which in other parts of the Bible we read is better by far than our lives here, but they are priests and kings unto God. That's so comforting. What this means, especially for martyrs, especially for those who are persecuted, especially for the sufferers of this world, is that Satan doesn't get the victory even at martyrdom. Remember a few weeks ago when I told you the story of my colleague, a church planner who started a church in Pakistan and was murdered after a miscarriage of justice on the steps of the courthouse in this small village in Pakistan. 
a horrible and tragic event, an act of injustice. That's one of the things that makes the saints cry out, how long, O Lord? But the good news is this, not even that man's murder at the hands of the wicked can defeat God's purposes. In fact, that man was immediately ushered into a place of such glory and beauty and joy and peace that we can't even begin to understand it in this life. As one of the great church fathers says, the, the death of the saints, the martyrdom of the saints is the seed of the church. It's what allows the church to grow. And indeed, even at our death, Jesus is victorious. Even at death, Jesus wins because Jesus has conquered death. Can you imagine what that message does? What it does for persecuted Christians who've lost family members to imperial persecution for being Christians? John says, not to be discouraged because now they are sitting on thrones in glory with Christ. And that should embolden us. Listen, death cannot defeat us because Jesus has defeated death. That's what the millennium's about. As Martin Luther, the great theologian, says in A Mighty Fortress, the body they may kill, but God's truth abides still. His kingdom is forever. So listen, listen. When you face trials or persecution, know that you are already a conqueror in Jesus. We should not fear boldly going into this dark world with the light of the gospel because death is just an entryway into our new life reigning with Jesus. And we can be comforted by those who have passed into heaven before us and know that they are at peace and at rest, that they are enjoying the life of communion and fellowship with our blessed God who is forever praised. Amen. Amen. Thank you. That's what the reign of the saints is about. I like the amens every now and then. Sometimes I just got to get one. We're talking about people who die go to heaven. That's good news. Satan is bound. Jesus wins. We can celebrate that. The binding of Satan, the reign of the saints, last, okay? The loosing of Satan, verses 7 through 10. Notice John tells us, verse 7, when the thousand years are ended, <clears throat> Satan will be released from his prison. So I've said that the millennium is a, a reference that's symbolic. It refers to the present age. It's another way of John telling the same story. It's a remix. And now John is saying that at the end of the age right before Jesus returns, right before what we saw last week at the end of chapter 19, Satan will be let out of whatever prison he is in now. His, you know, the cage in the zoo is going to be brought up and Satan's coming out. And he's going to wage war against God's people, against the church. This is Satan's last stand, so to speak. And this is a future event. And I'm not exactly sure what it's going to look like. But I think it's the best way to read it is as still future. So at some point in the future, God, and notice God is in control of all this. God is the one who loses Satan. Satan does not escape prison. God lets him out. God is sovereign. And for some reason, in his wisdom, he chooses to release the restraints that are currently on the devil. And the devil will come against God and against God's people. That's what this Gog and Magog language is about. That's taking images from Old Testament prophets, especially Ezekiel. And it's referring to the final spiritual war that will take place between the forces of God and the forces of Satan. It's the same thing we looked at last week in chapter 19. 
And so at the end, Satan's going to come. He's going to try to destroy the church through deception and through persecution. And then Jesus is going to wipe him out with the word of his power and cast him into the lake of fire where he will eternally perish and be punished for his evil along with the beast and the false prophet. That accords with other parts of the Bible that refer to Jesus' second coming. In fact, especially 2 Thessalonians, which is Paul's letter, one of Paul's letters. In chapter 2, he writes about the second coming. And I'm going to read, yep, I'm reading all that, so buckle up. Here we go. 2 Thessalonians 2, listen to this, thinking about Revelation 20. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day, the return of Jesus, will not come, will not come, unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now? We don't really know, but something's restraining him now. He's bound so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So there's a lot going on there, but the bottom line is here we see some sort of antichrist figure, this man of lawlessness who will come under the power of Satan and fight with full force at the end and cause disruption. He will cause a falling away among God's people. But then Jesus will return. He will judge the devil with the beast and the false prophet. He will make all things right. He will end the tyranny and evil works of the devil. And so again, Revelation encourages the people of God to wait his coming with patience and with hope. Jesus will win. Now, oftentimes in studying Revelation, we, we tend towards either an over-fascination with the end or just sort of a throwing our hands in the air and thinking none of this matters, who cares, it's all going to work out. And we need to land somewhere in the middle. We don't want to get overly fascinated with all the details, but we don't want to just say, oh, this doesn't matter either. The reason God gives us this in the Bible is to help us wait for his coming with patience and with hope. When life is hard, when you're under the power of the evil one, when you feel persecuted, when you feel cast out, when you feel powerless, that's when these verses become meaningful, real, and powerful. It's a reminder for us that right now Jesus is reigning, that everything that will ever happen in your life happens because Jesus has ordained it to happen, and it's somehow for your ultimate good. That Satan will one day exercise his full force against the church, but not even that, not even that can even begin to rattle Jesus. He is going to conquer. As Romans 16 says, he will crush the evil one underneath his feet. So as we try to navigate our way through all the difficulty of this particular part of the Bible, I want you to take hold of that main idea. Jesus is going to return. Jesus is going to triumph. Jesus is going to win. Wait. Wait with hope. Wait with patience. I think we can conclude in the way that Paul concludes there in 2 Thessalonians. 
Listen to how he wraps up his discussion. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, may he comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Let's pray. Father, as we, as we think together just in sort of a whirlwind tour of these really difficult and confusing verses, uh, it's hard for us 2,000 years removed from this book being written and from the language that it uses to really get what's happening in all of its details. And Father, even though that's the case, we, we pray uh, a prayer of thanks that you have made the end clear to us. You are going to win. That's been assured in the resurrection of ascension. And so we wait for you to return, Jesus, with hope and with eager expectation. And God, in the meantime, we, we pray that you would help us to have patience and to have faith, to not try to conquer ourselves, but to rest in your conquering the evil one for us. And God, as we study the scripture together, we pray that it would form us, not in just our intellectual understanding, but that it would form our whole lives, that we might more and more orient our lives around you, that we might be worshipers of you and not of the things of this world. God, we need your help in that because we fail at it every day. And so we ask you to come and help us now, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You are listening to the preaching ministry of Christ Church San Antonio. The following sermon is from our series in the book of Revelation. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.christchurchsa.com. Thank you for listening.